Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut. I'm an ASC cinematographer, and I wanted to kind of talk to you about something. Getting started in this industry is almost impossible. And my wife, Lydia, and I, 14 years ago, created a resource called Filmmakers Academy to make it possible. We saw a lot of gatekeeping in this industry and not a lot of sharing knowledge. So we wanted to pull back the curtain, give you confidence, teach you all the necessary skills to be an amazing, successful filmmaker, and package it all on this online resource that you have at your fingertips, on set, on your phone, on your laptop, whatever it is. So we're going to give you $50. So if you go into the show notes, click the link, and hit the promo code FAPOD50, you're going to get $50 on your first year of an all-access membership. And I cannot wait for you to join our immense and immersive community at Filmmakers Academy, where we network, we share knowledge, we just bond as this huge filmmaking uh, resource to ignite your creativity and push you beyond your boundaries. I cannot wait to see you in the Academy, and let's get to the podcast. Welcome to Shane's Inner Circle Podcast with your hosts, Shane and Lydia. Hello, Inner Circle members, and welcome to podcast episode number 41. Shane and I are super fired up to be with you this month, and we have some great questions ahead that we're going to dive into in just one second. But before we do, we wanted to thank you all for submitting questions and to remind you that if you haven't done it yet, or if you've been a little shy to submit your question, please send them our way. This is your direct access to both Shane and myself, and we really enjoy this podcast. We love doing it together and we try to give it our best and be present for you every single month. And if your question is time sensitive that you're sending in, make sure to write time sensitive so we can bump that to the top of our list. All right. Let's start with question number one. Firstly, I just wanted to say hi from the UK. How you doing, Carl? And thanks for everything both you and Lydia do for us. In the SIC, I've learned a serious ton in this forum, which is making my move up the DOP ladder much quicker than if you weren't offering your knowledge. So thank you. Well, you're very welcome, Carl. So I have a question about continuity. This might be super basic, but I've been it's been cropping up on my radar recently. How much thought do you put into the continuity between shots, i.e. with lighting, exposure, color, camera movement, composition, etc. I've been really focusing on getting decent exposures and nice frames without really thinking about the next shot and how it will work. Is this a consideration of yours? All right, Carl. Well, in regards to this, yes, continuity is a huge thing. You want to always be thinking about, you know, I, I just light the master shot and then I move to the mediums and then I move to the close-up. I want to describe a uh, sequence that happened on fathers and daughters so you can understand my thought process. So Gabriele Muccino, the director, came up to me and he goes, we have a very intense scene where Diane Kruger is going to really break down and cry. I want to do the close-up first and then the medium shot and then the wide. And I said, okay, cool. Not a problem, but I'm going to have to light the wide shot first so I can understand where the light has to come from in that wide shot that then motivates where my medium shot light is and my close-up light. And he's like, okay, no problem. So we did that. So I lit the wide and got it all happy on my camera, looking at it. Excellent. That's where the light's coming from. Okay, this is the continuity of the light, What hard, soft, whatever it is. And then as I go in for the medium shot and the close-up, I'm able to soften it and manage manicure it and slide it left or right, whatever, up or down, whatever's going to be the best on the face and, and deliver the emotion. The funny thing was, in this story, Diane Kruger saw that what I was doing and she goes, Shane, what, what are you doing? And I said, well, Gabrielli wants me to do the close-up first because this is an intense scene for you. 
And she goes, okay. And so in the close-up, she did very well. In the medium shot, she destroyed it in regards to being incredibly uh, emotional. And in the wide shot, she killed it and did her best performance. So I was like, okay, that didn't work. Just so you understand, yes, the continuity, you want to be taking light meter reading so you understand ratios. So when you get into the cl- the the medium shot and the close-up coverage, you are doing all that specific, you know, trying to keep everything very balanced and very close. You're matching color temps. So if you have specific color temp, if there's a practical in the scene and you want to emulate and motivate that practical, well, you're trying to match what that practical's color temp is, as well as, you know, whatever other lights you have playing on. So this is something that your thought process is light your wide shot, get all your ratios, record that in your mind or in a book of light or on your iPad or on your phone as a note. Then you literally go in when you do your medium shots, you're matching those ratios. If you want to soften the light a little more, if you want to open the shadows up, if you, whatever you want to do, if you want to make the cut on their face a little harder so you can bring in a flag because you couldn't put that into the wide shot, you can do that. All these things are keeping with the continuity and the light direction can be bent for sure. Like you can take a, a light that was more like three-quarter backish or more side lit. And then when you come in for the close-up, you can bring that around more frontal. Uh, these are things that you can easily get away with. It's called lighting cheats, where you're kind of cheating the light around and making it more forgiving and, and more beautiful for the shot. All right. Well, there is question number one. Now moving on to question number two. Okay, I'm going to take this question in terms of the ask. Hi, Shane. Okay, boy. I Please forgive me if I butcher your name from Bulgaria, but I think it's Tamir Lazarov. And if I said your name wrong again, I'm so sorry. Thanks for the opportunity to be able to learn from your experience. I have a question about motorized gimbals and classic offline Steadicams. When do you prefer to use gimbals such as the Movi and when Steadicams? For me, steady cams are when I need to pan and tilt faster, while devices like the Movi are when the camera has to be passed onto another set of hands or for wanting to have a smooth all-around camera movement. Let me know if there are any other cases we may consider steady cams versus motorized gimbal. All right. That's a great question. And there is on the Hurl blog right now, there is a resource for you. If you go on there, it's a a three-part segment where I go into all how I use the Movi. And you can immediately start to see how many uses this device has. I look at the Movi is able to do a hundred things and the Steadicam is able to do five to 10. So if you are creating an arsenal of attack for your movie, the Movi is going to be unbelievable in regards to what it can deliver. Now, I just finished a movie with Gabriel Mochino. The Movi Tech and the Movi Operator is a huge deal, just like having a great Steadicam operator. So if you don't have a good Movi Cam uh, operator or a Movi Tech, it is not going to a, be a great experience for you. So the Steadicam, it's been out for a lot longer. So the Steadicam is going to give you exactly what you mentioned, whip pans, very quick and it's going to also be very, very stable and much more precise. Okay, that's what the Steadicam gives you. Much more precise and to um, uh, cinematic sense, it's just a little more not stable in regards to, you know, feeling like you're on a boat or something because the Movi is very stable. It's just how precise that device is. Uh, it's precision. The Movi is can be somewhat precise, but it has a lot of what they call softening on the uh, pan tilt. So it's not geared. So like a very expensive, you know, power pod or Libra head or a flight head is all geared mechanism. If I turn those wheels, it only goes where, when I stop my wheel, 
the camera stops. When I stop my pan, the camera stops. On the Movi, if I pan a wheel, you know, on the Alpha wheels or the Clawson, if I turn it and stop, the Movi continues to keep on going ever so slightly. So it's not as precise of a device, but what it gives you is many, many ways to create. And that's what I love about it. It's a very inspiring tool and and uh, figuring out incredible ways to move it and hand it off and and fly on pipes and techno cranes and off of off of you know cliffs and uh, cable camming it and all these cool things and enables you to do. The one thing that I have to say is we ran into a situation where on this film we had a, a massive storm that we were creating. So we were blowing tons of wind and the Steadicam does not work in the wind. And if it works in the wind, that means you have to add gyros to try and stabilize it. So this is where the Movi completely destroyed the Steadicam because the Movi wasn't affected by the 50, 60 mile an hour gusts that we were hitting the actors with. The Movi wasn't even impacted with the wind. It just like was completely locked, beautifully stable. So these are the kind of situations you want to look at what you're your storytelling processes, what the script is telling you, and deploy that specific device. I had an incredible experience with Steadicams on all my feature films that I've ever done. And this last one, we were able to use the Steadicam and Movi combo, and it worked out beautifully. I think that would be really interesting, Shane, because it it would seem, and I'm no cinematographer here, but it would seem if you had the ability to use both on a project, um, that you would kind of get the best of both worlds and you wouldn't have to necessarily make a choice, right? Absolutely. But budgetarily, you know, that's a crushing blow to most sets because the Steadicam operator is a very high-priced item and the Movi tech guy is a very high-priced item. So having the two of those is luxury. And uh, I've had that wonderful opportunity uh, on my movies to be able to have that situation. But, you know, not everyone does have that. So uh, I'm just kind of pointing out the best of what each tool does, and then you can decide how to deploy it correctly. Okay. Moving on to the next question. I always like to think big, and I hear so much, I just want to interject this, that I hear so much of, well, that would never happen for me, or I don't have that budget. What the heck are they thinking? And I just want to throw in a mindset piece here again really quickly. So even though you may not currently have the ability to have, let's say, both the Steadicam and a Movi, I throw that in because I think it's very important to envision that for yourself, that, you know, you will have that option one day. That will be a possibility for you. And, you know, part of it is honestly believing it in your heart that you will move forward, You will your budgets will grow, and because we limit ourselves so much with our mind. So just be open to possibility, be open to thinking big, be open to not having the understanding of it and how you will get there, and you'll be amazed at what happens for you. And I know that that sounds very woo-woo on my part, but trust me, you have to envision something for yourself in your mind's eye and really see it and inhabit it before it happens in the real world, if that makes sense. Okay, moving on to question number three. Hi, Shane and Lydia. A huge thanks for keeping this incredibly valuable resource going. I can honestly say it's made me think differently on shoots and up my skills level massively. Well, thank you so much, Robert from Cambridge. We are so excited to have you as an Inner Circle member. And um, that's Cambridge in England, not Massachusetts. So I just wanted to clarify that. On to my question. I'm turning 25 this year and hold a job as a corporate videographer for a university. Whilst it's a good job, I feel I've hit the glass ceiling. I would love to get into the feature film side of the business, but I don't know where to find this sort of job. Forums, Facebook, job sites, or is it a case of who you know? If it's a case of who you know, how does one go ahead about building this sort of network? Is it just shameless self-promotion? 
I'm building my reel to include more than just corporate work, but I don't feel that any of my work is at a level where it would be taken seriously by anyone. How would you recommend getting your reel in front of someone who will take notice? Wow, that's a doozy of a question, Robert. And uh, we're thrilled to tackle it. So I'm going to start with, let's see, how, how do you get yourself out there? You know, one of the first things I will say is you really need to have an, you, you need to do an honest assessment of your skill set, your level, and your ability. Because I think the biggest mistake that people make is that they do shamelessly self-promote and they don't have the chops or the skill set to stand behind what they're promoting. So they may say, hey, I'm a DP and, you know, I can absolutely handle this commercial or feature film. But then once they get into it, they quickly realize that they are in way over their head. So I think... The greatest service that you can give yourself is to be really honest with where you're at. You know, uh, know yourself. Are you a beginner? Are you an intermediate? Or are you really an advanced level person? And I think once you kind of look around to your peers or your mentors and determine, okay, let's, let's just pretend that you're intermediate at this point, um, just so I can make my point here. Then I think at that, from there, you really want to look at what networking groups are available outside of the people that you know, because it's always important to come into contact with new people, with, you know, new potential clients. And we do this a lot, and that's why the networking for the inner circle, I'm really beating this drum in 2018. Because when we get together face-to-face, offline, look into one another's eyes, there's something very special and magical that happens when you do that. I think that we're so isolated nowadays that we really don't, you know, everybody wants to go to, hey, I, you know, saw you on Instagram or Facebook and, you know, we met that way. But the in-person conversations the collaborative ideas, the sharing of knowledge that happens is so critical. And so I would say both face-to-face networking and, you know, also online works very well. The other recommendation that I have is that If you're going to promote yourself, I think everybody has a different way of doing it, and you need to be really true to yourself. So if it feels inauthentic in any way, then I'm going to be immediately turned off. So I would much rather hear from somebody, hey, I'm just starting out, and I'm really, you know, trying to learn everything I can learn that versus the fake, like, well, I've done, you know, 15 to 20 jobs and I know exactly what I'm doing. I think it needs to be a very authentic knowing yourself, knowing your skill level. And then really where the shameless part comes in is not so much talking up yourself. It's really talking about where you want to go, right? What your desires are. Because I think what people really respond to is, hey, gosh, he really wants to be a director or be a DP. Maybe right now, you know, he's a third grip. But I think if I know that that's your goal, then I can help you as a person that's just met you, either recommend you for other jobs or recommend you to certain people that would potentially give you those experiences. So I think it's really important to have a clear understanding of who you are, what your skill set is, and then where you want to be, what your end game looks like to allow other people to help you. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing I want to kind of throw out is this. There is an inner circle group 
in London that you want to hook up with and you just want to reach out, hop on the inner circle and just say, hey, anyone in London, anyone in the UK at all that is has any projects, I'd love to be able to come on and help you. This is the network process. Whether you're strapping on a sound recorder and carrying a boom to a PA or whatever it might be for you to get your foot in the door to help other groups out and help other people on their films or commercials or whatever they're shooting. This is very important. This is the network process. I remember when I came to Los Angeles, the first thing I did is I just started surfing student websites. So where all the students, film students, were going and posting that they needed help, whether they needed actors or they needed, you know, runners or they needed grip or electric. And I just started going on to these things, just working for free starting to ha- get friends working in the business. And one of those friends ended up being a DP that was working as a third electric on uh, from USC. And one of his good friends was a director. Well, all of a sudden, that director called from USC, called him to shoot a 7-Up commercial. And all of a sudden, now I'm the gaffer of that 7-Up commercial. And all of a sudden, my career is starting and going, you know, jumping up the ladder four rungs at a time. So it's this networking where you're just getting in there and showing what they what you can do. And the other thing is you said you put you were putting your reel together and you were kind of embarrassed on it and ashamed that none of that stuff uh, is going to be good. Well, here's the thing. Whatever you're doing great you said you uh, had hit a glass ceiling. So you're obviously doing interviews and all that stuff incredible well in the corporate world. You show that, okay? That's what you show. And you'll get more work on that outside of the university. And this is where you start to meet people. And then they're going to say, hey, I got this short film that I'm shooting. Hey, can you come and help me on it? And it all starts to snowball. I agree, Shane. And one thing I want to say about reels, because we see this over and over and over and over again, is you don't want to make your reel too long. I think that people are under the false assumption that they have to literally put every single piece of work that they ever put on their reel. And you want to leave people wanting more of you. Yeah, two and a half minutes uh, with a first starting out is a max. It's like a trailer for a movie in the theater. That's that's kind of your your uh, limit when you're first starting out. And the lastly, and we're going to get to reels a little bit more, but... The music really does matter that accompanies your reel. And it's very important to carefully choose your music because music creates an emotion that people feel when they watch your visuals. So I just want to, you know, say pay careful attention. You're very attached to your reel. You have no perspective on your reel. And I remember this so deeply with Shane. You know, he would show me his reel to sign off when he was, oh my God, we had so many versions of this reel. It was ridiculous. And I would I would be brutal with him. I would say, you know what? I don't like that. Or I, you know, that doesn't work there. Or... And so it was a it was an incredibly collaborative effort. And I think that people get very egoic about reels and it it is you know it's very personal it's a representation of you as an artist and what i will say is that really pick your absolute best work work that excites you keep it short pay attention to the music and do your best effort with your reel and then get some external feedback about it from people that you trust because that is, right? Absolutely. And you don't want to put, you don't want to shape your reel to something that you haven't really shot. You don't want to take some of your, you know, corporate video stuff and try to turn it into narrative. You want to put your best foot forward in the corporate world, start getting jobs outside of the university, and then that will open doors from contacts that you meet along the way. 
Put your bet, best foot forward in what you do great right now. And then you can expand and do better and wow people with all the wonderful knowledge that you're getting from my head uh, out there in the world. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> all right. All right. On to the next question. <laughs> We're on the next question, which is question number four. Hi, Shane. Thank you and your team so much for the rich content provided here. I have some questions regarding cinematography reels. I'm an 18-year-old filmmaker heading into post-secondary next year. I DP'd my first short a few months ago and just finished my third short this month. The idea of creating a reel in order to attract more projects popped up. Would you recommend publishing a short reel with shots from a few recurring projects or leave space for a larger variety of projects before putting it to use? Also, would you suggest to include shots outside of narratives, such as documentaries, real estate videos, music videos, or even standalone shots taken during leisure time? Thank you so much for the advice, Ollie Bean. Thank you, Ollie. All right, Ollie. So on to the DP reel thing. We're getting double DP reel questions today. We could talk about reels all day long. So this is good. <laughs> all right. So just thinking about uh, the idea of creating reel in order to attract more projects. So... We're in a visual medium. The more you can show people uh, your style, your aesthetics, your mood, your tone, uh, what you're really good at, the reel is an extension of you. So I would suggest cutting this reel to keeping it to two and a half minutes and being able to throw in the kitchen sink as long as it is stunningly beautiful and that it says something, that it creates a mood or a tone or an emotion. Just throwing in stuff that you think might look good that, that has no wow factor, it's not going to be good for the real. This is something where you have to captivate and capture uh, an attention span of somebody for two minutes, and it has to blow them away. It's got to be like the first imagery has to be, wow, I want to sit back and watch this for a minute. And then at the 30-second the mark, there has to be something that takes them out a different direction. They were like, whoa, what is this? And then at a minute, something else has to change, so they want to see more. And at two minutes, there's got to be something else, and then you want to cut them off and leave them hanging and wanting more. That's a great reel. And I think it's about scope, breadth, and depth. So the other mistake that I see, and, and I think it's important to talk about mistakes here because they really help you determine what not to do, is these reels that are just cut so quickly together that you can't even really take in the visuals. I think that people... You know, this quick cutting, jumping from one thing to another, to another, to another, to another, that doesn't allow the the viewer to really uh, feel the journey, if that makes sense. I, I, you know, Shane and I see that a lot. It's like, whoa, what are we looking at? So I, I think it's very important to look at breadth and scope, but it's also about letting the shots play out. Yeah, you got to think about... Uh taking your viewer on a emotional roller coaster, uh, whether it's emotional or whether it's visually and they need time to breathe and they need time to be excited and wowed with quick cutting. And then there's those moments where you just want to let that shot play. So you can just take in the impact of that composition of that light of that emotion and then back to, uh, excitement. Yes, and it was so funny because there is a movie that was that is up for an Academy Award called The Dinner with Richard Gere. And I just remember really paying attention to the editing of that movie because these these uncomfortable shots just played out and you just felt so uncomfortable watching different pieces from this dinner. And, and it was a palpable uncomfortable. 
And it it was so effective in the editing because, you know, you were on the edge of your seat, you were nervous, you didn't know what was going to happen next. And so I think the more emotion that you can make people feel in this reel, whether it is uncomfortable, whether it is excitement, whether it is sadness, but that is what sticks with people. That's what they remember. And, you know, obviously you want to have incredibly beautiful shots as well, but it's the emotion that is really going to be long lasting and stick with people. Okay, we are moving on. I think we've covered the real. This is question number five. I've been a member since early on, and I really appreciate the content you put out. Shane, I apologize in advance for how long I anticipate this question being. (laughs) Yeah, Jesus, it is. Since 2009, I have been running a small production company, which we built from the ground up. I am a producer and have always had a goal of being a producer. However, over the years, I've really developed a passion for light. In addition to producing, I usually operate as a DP or a gaffer on my own company's projects. Recently, though, no direct pursuit. I've started working freelance in these roles on other folks' projects. Awesome. I remember you mentioning that you initially thought you'd go into producing. My first question is, how do you determine what role to pursue? And can you pursue more than one at a time? Well, let's start there with that question since it's like 17 pages long, Josiah. Okay, so I would say that the one thing that I loved about producing was just understanding budget and understanding where things go. And it helps me as a director of photography now. I'm able to blow that budget out of proportion immediately. No, just kidding. No, Yeah, we all know that. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, you're able to really see what you want to put on the screen and what you don't. And there's compromises, there's sacrifices, and understanding the numbers and what it takes is is very important because just – saying that you're going to rent this piece of gear and rent that piece of gear does nothing because you got to think about how many man days are going to take to deploy that piece of gear, what it's going to take from the rental house to pull it, to bring it to you, what's the transportation, how long is it going to take the pre-rig, you know, all these things factor in. Feeding the crew, which is honestly expensive. Yeah. So it's like, you know, these are the kind of things that uh, it's not just a piece of gear. You got to follow the thread back to what that piece of gear is going to cost production. So can you pursue being a director of photography and a producer? Well, I think yes, because being really good at both those things actually helps each other job out very effectively. And I would say, I think we grow and change over time. So you may start out as a producer and really love producing. And then as is happening by circumstance or just because you have an interest, you may move over into the DP role and realize that, you know, that's who you are now. That's who you want to be now. And then you may want to do producing less because it doesn't make your heart sing as much. So I think it's a, it's important to look at internal growth and what you really love to do as well. Absolutely. So now let's tackle the next part of the question. Right now, my company is a big fish in a small pond, but geographically, we're not far from Chicago and have not really pushed that market yet. Currently, I support my family of six through commercial producing. However, I'm interested in doing more freelance work on larger projects in the role of a gaffer or a DP, a role where I can have some control over the lighting plan. How would you go about pursuing more freelance work in a larger market? How do you connect with directors or DPs respectively? Okay, so expanding into those markets is always, you know, um, a frightening thing, but you just got to jump off the cliff because you will systematically 
talk yourself out of going into these larger markets based on having a family of six, having, you know, to provide for them, being there for them, all that stuff. You can easily talk yourself out of going anywhere. So you have to talk with your family and make sure everyone is supporting this process because you can't just do that alone. You know, before I ever took a, 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 you know, went up a ladder rung on my career, both Lydia and I discussed it. How long am I going to be away? What, what does this mean? What is the scope of this? So both of us know exactly what we're in for, as well as when, you know, the projects came, whether I took the feature projects and the long projects where the kids were, were younger, what did that mean? It meant me trying to book more jobs in Los Angeles so I could be by them and, and not gone for six to eight to 11 months. So you want to first make sure your can your family is absolutely supporting this expansion. And once they're on board, then you jump off that cliff. And I think that it's also very important for your own peace of mind and your family's peace of mind to understand, you know, maybe you save a chunk of money and then do it. But I think timing is critically important. So as you're going down this road, you know, maybe your significant other is partially working uh, or has an online something. I know that a lot of my girlfriends right now are doing um, different online businesses that they're a part of, but that they don't own, that actually really, really gives them a great revenue stream. So it's it's capitalizing on all of your available options and understanding, as Shane said, that it's not just you that's going through this, that that being in the industry and any sort of major change obviously impacts your family very deeply. And they may have ideas to help you out that you hadn't thought of. You know, I think sometimes we try to shoulder the burden ourselves and one mind is great you know, two or more minds on a problem is so much better because it just gives you a different perspective. So is there another part to the question, yes. Shane? We keep going. Yes. Side note, as a gaffer, I have a two-ton grip and lighting truck to offer. Long-term goals, narrative filmmaking, while keeping uh, one foot in the high-end commercial projects. Thank you for always your thoughtful responses, Josiah. Well, I think, Josiah, it's... It, I think it's very exciting to get into the Chicago market. I remember I did a lot of advertising in Chicago in the 90s and early 2000s. You know, it's they have a great group of uh, technicians there. And uh, I think you, once you have the, the go-ahead with your family, I think you should pursue this. I think you should try to to become a small fish in a big pond and you're, work your way up the ladder. And, and I think it's going to really expand your creativity and it's going to expand your network. And these are very, very exciting things for, you know, for your inner core of your uh, mindset and your body and soul. It just, I, I have to say, doing what I do, I love so much that it's surprisingly how uh, that I get paid for it. Mm -hmm. So these are things that are very, that I just want to pass on to you, that your love of this is, is helps you in your family life. It helps you in your, in your work life, your personal life, everything. So you want to, you want to go for what you love. Just a quick aside. Okay. I went to the dentist yesterday and believe me, this story relates. And I had to go for my regular teeth cleaning. And it was so funny because the dental hygienist and the front office person said to me that they could not believe what a happy person Shane was, that he was just so happy. He was like a little kid and that his laugh stood out. And I really honestly believe that that happiness comes from, as he was just saying, absolutely doing what you love, what you were meant to do. You know, we only have this life. And it's like so many of the time, I think that we all put off um, 
listening to what this inner voice tells us that we should do or that we're in love with because we're scared or because we're, you know, we just, we talk ourselves out of it. And so um, I just want to say, you know, I think it's really great. You're potentially thinking of going for this, Josiah. And, you know, there is, and if this is the same Josiah that is doing the Chicago Inner Circle meetups, I'm not sure if it is, but we have a Josiah heading those, um, then obviously that is a great place. They're coming in January to meet other people and um, just go for it. We're, this whole community is behind you. And if you're stuck, remember to ask the inner circle community for ideas, for support. That's what makes this so powerful. I think sometimes having a non-family, non-judgmental entity where you can say, wow, you know, I'm just feeling really stuck today, or I didn't get the job I wanted, and I'm I'm down on myself or whatever. I mean, our community is to be there to cheer when you're doing great. And I think everybody shares the greatness. But we're also there for each other like a family when, you know, you're struggling. And so I just want to put that out there for people that that, you know, I think it's a very loving group. And so really reach out to other inner circle members and have them be there for you. All right. On to question six and our final question. All right. I'm bringing my wife on as a studio manager soon and would like to ask if you have any advice on your experiencing and transitioning into Shane's world. What the heck does that mean? Ultimately, she will run the whole show. Art Laggett. Okay, Art, uh, this is really great because what Art is asking here is working together as a team if his wife, who's about to run his studio, really doesn't have a lot of experience in that. And I will tell you, it is a steep learning curve, okay, having been down this road. And I offered myself a support for Art's wife as well because... Um, let me tell you that the technological slash gear slash, you know, all of the different pieces and parts it takes to be a filmmaker is very daunting for people who are not used to the world. And so I think number one art, it is really deciding who is doing what? Because what makes it incredibly successful for Shane and myself is that we each have our own roles. So we don't feel like we're constantly stepping on one another because then it could cause relationship trouble and that you definitely do not want. So number one, be patient with her as she's learning the, you know, the tech speak of the film industry and what it means to run a studio and, you know, also getting some classes or, I mean, I go to my women entrepreneurial group every single week or month, sorry. And uh, we have an online class and we learn monthly. And I'm telling you, I take away so much knowledge from this group, everything from getting systems in place to, budgeting properly to cash flow. You know, there's a lot uh, in my job as CEO of Hurlbut Visuals. There's an awful lot on my shoulders with running this. And I really stick to the business side of things much more. Shane is on the creative, you know, uh, content generation side. And we each have our own zones that we we work in. However, we really do ask one another questions, say, hey, what do you think about this? I mean, it's very, very collaborative. And I will say that we think the same way. So 99% of the time, we're in agreement. What makes it very tricky for working together is if you don't think the same way. Okay, that that's really a recipe for disaster, because then your staff is hearing one thing from one person and one thing from another person, they don't know who's making the decision and who to go to, and it's a nightmare, okay? So the three, like, right off the bat pieces of advice, be patient, figure out 
who is doing what and stay in your zone. Don't step on the other person's toes. If they make a mistake, it's okay. Let them own the mistake. I've made a lot since 2009. I own it. I take responsibility and I clean up the mess. Okay. So I think that's really as being as authentic and transparent as I can be. We all make mistakes. So if you make the mistake, it's okay. You've got to let the person make the mistake because that's how they learn. If you're constantly swooping in and and fixing it, they will never learn. And they also won't feel trusted. And then the third thing is you need to have one person really responsible for the strategy and one person responsible for the money because if you have too many cooks in the money kitchen, you know, there needs to be one person signing off on bill paying to make sure that you you have a system. Every system has a point person. And it's I'm going to let Shane speak about point people because he's a firm believer in this, but it's an accountability checking. Absolutely. Uh, I'll share a story with you and this will kind of wrap it all up. On Need for Speed, we had, when we started the process of our first week up in uh, Mendocino, we had uh, 14 camera assistants via, you know, second assistants, first assistants, and uh, digital loaders and DIT. And the f- second week, I realized we weren't going as fast as we should be going. And the reason was is because this was very different working in this environment because it's not like we had an A camera, a B camera, a C camera, a D camera. We had so many cameras that we were labeling triple X on the GoPro. So imagine you you have a GoPro that is a triple X. So you obviously know that there's at least 60 GoPros to even get to the triple X uh, with the alphabet. So this is kind of what we were dealing with. And I found that I actually let go four people in the camera department and shrank it to nine And those nine, I attached jobs. There was one person that all he did was the Canon 1DC over the shoulder cams and the GoPros. There was one person that was only responsible for the crash housing. There was one person that all he did was the camera car. Uh, all the, uh, you know, the, the arm car. There was another person that all they did was the, the, uh, specific, uh, studio and handheld configurations and sets up, setups. So this job correlation where each individual was responsible for all that, they organized their kit, they had all the specific things in, in a row, and they knew how to get in there, deploy it quickly and make it great. When it was the responsibility of one AC one time and then another AC another time, no one could get really great at this one thing. And that's where you want to, with your with your wife and the studio, you want to basically make sure each person is doing a specific job and that they do that job great. Now, I jump all around our company and I get in everyone's business. And that's very distracting sometimes for people. And I basically say to Lydia, I'm a director. I remember this from Rob Cohen. And when I did two movies with this guy, this guy had his hand in everything from the makeup, from the sound, from the, from what the copy and font type was going to be on the poster. This dude got into everything. And I learned from that because it is the big picture. And as a director, you really need to see everything. You need to be able to, uh, as we build a brand, as Shane's inner circle, we, I, I need to have my hand in everything. Now, that's very chaotic sometimes, but I think it brings out the best in our company. Right, Lydia? <laughs> yeah, Shane. <laughs> we call him Hurricane. No, um, <laughs> Here's here's the thing. It's it's different leadership styles, and that's Shane's style, and it's awesome. My style is a little bit different. I feel like I ha- I trust my people. 
I make sure that I have the best of the best and that they are in the proper roles so that they love what they do. And and they will come to me if they're not confident, if there's an issue, if there's a problem. And, you know, the way that my life is segmented between kids and work and elder care, senior care, I don't have the luxury of checking on everything. But I think it actually works very, very well for Shane and myself because they will go to one or the other of us depending on what the situation is. So it's clarity in the roles, systems that have an ability to be double-checked. And this is the the final point because it's critical whether you're on a movie project or any sort of shoot. You need to have accountability in place. And it's not accountability to get people in trouble for screwing up and firing them. It's really accountability for double and triple checking because depending on the budgets, you can't afford reshoots. You cannot afford to get an actor back, let's say, especially a very high-end actor. So it has to be done right the first time. And I think we're human and we all have good days and not so great days, even though we're trying to have the best day every day. So I think having an accountability system, a double-checking system, is very, very, very important. And I just wanted to add that because that's where, you know, last-minute things get caught and it's just, it's critical for the success of your business. So Art, we as a community wish you the best. We wish you huge success. And um, we have so enjoyed this podcast. We're going to put a pin in it right there because I know we're over time. And we hope that um, you continue to submit questions. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you want more of. Tell us what you don't like. We just want to hear from you. Absolutely. And we thank you so much for submitting these questions and uh, providing your insight and sharing your knowledge in the community. And let's continue to thrive as this powerful community and build it. We have a set number of members right now. We need to keep on expanding our member base. Because costs are rising and we don't want to have to put the price up anymore. So we really need your help in in bringing in more members and keeping this community thriving. Because the way that we do content and the way that we put it out there, it costs us so much money to produce. Yes. And we don't want the content to suffer and your knowledge to suffer based on our members and our numbers, because we need to keep this number count increasing. And anything that you can do to spread the uh, awareness of what this group is about and how powerful it is will be much appreciated. All right. That concludes episode 41 of this podcast. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. If you love what you're listening to here, go to shanesinnercircle.com. It is knowledge that is forged on the set. This is not a classroom environment. This is boots on the ground, immersive learning, that you can apply immediately to whatever your skill level is. Knowledge you can trust, people that care. That's exactly what happens in our loving film community of shanesinnercircle.com. Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And my wife and I have created this incredible resource called the Filmmakers Academy. And we'd love for you to download and rate our app. If you're a filmmaker, do yourself a favor and download the Filmmakers Academy app today. It's available wherever you get your apps, most notably the App Store, Google Play, Amazon App Store, and the Roku Channel Store. The app includes everything on the platform for all access members and from content to community and coaching opportunities, everything you need to master your craft. So download the app, and this is the most important part. Be sure to rate it. Rating us really helps us spread the word and enhance our rankings in this dedicated app store. So if you love what we're doing, this is a way to show it. Together, let's take your career as a filmmaker to the next level.